Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along, the podcast where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this season is all about the Fallout role-playing game, so if you don't have a copy of the rules, check out your local game or bookshop, or if one of those isn't handy for you, check out the Modifius Entertainment website at modiphius.net. Okay, so before we get into this week's recap and build, there are some things I need to cover from the last two episodes. I wanted to start with the second episode first, since I do need to apologize for last week's episode not being what I'd promised you'd get. What I said during the show was true, but it doesn't excuse me not having written the episode before my vacation began. I try to be better than that, and it annoys the heck out of me when stuff like last week happens. On that same point, I wanted to address questions several listeners sent me that were a variation on whether or not I was high when I recorded it. I mean, look, I'll admit weed is fully legal in the state of Illinois, which is where I live, but I don't use it. So the sound of the show came from me recording at around 5 a.m. last Thursday because I'd run out of time to write the show and needed to get something recorded so I could edit and get it posted in time for the Friday midnight release. So I apologize for that as well. And if I'm being honest, I kind of thought the same thing when I was editing the show, so if you thought that, you are not the only one. I think it also had something to do with me working off of note points instead of a script, so the difference should be very apparent with this week's show. And on the subject of what I was on when I recorded an episode, backing up two weeks, I've gotten note after note about the layout of the basement of the art museum, since the way I said the layout was made absolutely no sense to those who'd used the audio of the show to write out their own maps. Here's what happened. I drew the map out upside down, so instead of north, south, east, west, I was going south, northwest, east. What happened along the way is I kept accidentally inverting the compass as I was reading things off. I'm going to try to get a YouTube piece up where I straighten that out, so if I didn't already get it out before this posts, I'll try to have it out either by the end of the weekend or early next week. I didn't do a game recap last week, even though we'd game the Saturday before, so we'll have that later on in this show, and we'll have another next week since we're gaming tomorrow night as this show posts. Now, I kind of buried the lead on this, but this is episode 52 of the current season, which means we've been building for the Fallout role-playing game for the past year. I said a few weeks back that I don't know how much longer this season's going to be, but I can assure you it'll run at the very least until early in 2024. But I wanted to thank you for your continued support, and I hope you'll stick with us when we kick off season three next year. Okay, so I've checked everything off the list that I needed to go back and cover before we moved on for the week, so let's get into what you're here for. And you know the drill by now. We recap what we built last time before we build new. The recap's real easy. We got the group into the art museum in search of Jessica Denman. They went through the various exhibit halls of the museum, a a number of encounters, and absolutely no art. When they got to the final room, they killed what they thought at first was Denman, but turned out to be a faceless synth that just kind of resembled her. They were greeted by Denman's voice taunting them, letting them know that her and her team were close to completing a project for Paladin Zane's Brotherhood of Steel. She stated that she was going to give the group what she called a fighting chance to find her and noted that she was in a facility south of Diamond Pass and hinted that it was owned by someone Victor knows. Denman made it clear that she's got a vertebrate to use, so the group's on a ticking clock. So that's where we're picking up this week. Like we noted, the group is on the clock. 
the very first thing they need to figure out is what facility Jessica Demon was referring to, since they've had a couple of places they've been that are technically south of Diamond Pass. My group is going to have an issue with this since they've managed to skip most of the side quests. It's also going to be difficult since they haven't dealt with many of Victor's associates. So coming up with the correct answer is going to be rather difficult for them. I've got a workaround for that, but before I get to it, I guess we need to name the location Denman and her associates are at the moment. That's the Lemp Brewery, which, as you may remember, is run by Melanie Zombrowski. Now, your group may come up with that immediately, especially since the brewery has more than enough space for Denman to be able to have taken over some space without the owner being too aware of it, or at least being able to occupy the space with a buffer group or individual. We'll expand on that momentarily. We first have to decide how the group will get to the Lemp Brewery if they've not spent much time down there or dealing with Melanie Zombrowski, much like my group has or hasn't if we're searching for something that sounds like proper English. I know I spent a lot of time last week talking about Victor and Mr. Lee, but they would be good sources of information the group could use to know what they need to do, which is head to the Lemp Brewery. I'm not going to write out the entire conversation, but suffice it to say that whichever one they contact, when they tell them what Denman said, they'll take a moment to think it over before noting that the Lemp Brewery is the only location that would fit the type of place Denman was hinting at. It has the added bonus of allowing her to take out an ally, since Zembrowski won't let her brewery go down without a fight. Another option would be the group calling into the Pacificus or contacting Mackenzie Cook directly. Either way, they'll get confirmation that a vertebrate was sent to the area around Lent Brewery a couple of hours ago, and though they'd tried to shoot it down, they'd failed at that. And if the group inquires, they'll get what they know they really need to get down there quickly, as Elder Sandvar will authorize them to be picked up by a vertebrate of their own. The stated explanation for this, since the group's going to be questioning how they can get a vertebrate when Sandvar had made it clear earlier that the Brotherhood had nothing to spare to help out, is that since the battle began, they've had a bit of success, so they can release a vertebrate to transport the group to Lemp. The added benefit to this is that they might be able to destroy the other vertebrate and take another enemy vehicle off the board. So, use whatever you need to use and say it however you need to say it to get it explained to your group. And if the group already knows where they need to go and think of trying to get a vertebrate, they can do so with the same response they'd get if it went the other direction. Now, you need to keep stressing the fact that they are on the clock. I say that again because there are some groups that are going to want to just take all the time in the world to make a decision. So if you've got one of those groups, do what you can to rush them along a bit. And you can justify it like this. In a real crisis situation, you wouldn't have all day to make a decision. You'd have a matter of moments to take in what was going on around you, formulate a plan, and take action. So keeping them moving isn't you being controlling or some sort of jerk. It's you injecting a certain amount of realism into the game. And yes, I realize there's a bit of contradiction in using realism in a tabletop role-playing game. However, I also think there is a place for it, and this is one of those places. They'll need to give their location, and the vertebrate will be able to land in front of the art museum, especially since the group has shut down the system, pumping smog and radiation into the air, or at least they should have. As a matter of fact, by the time they get out of the museum, things have really begun to clear up. The radiation levels are still a bit high, but not nearly as bad as they've been. 
The group will have to wait a few minutes for it to arrive. So if you've got an encounter inside the park that they didn't get to, you could drop it in here if you wanted to. And if it's one of the big ones, they'll know when the vertebrate arrives because it'll come in with miniguns ablazing. Upon landing, the knight handling the minigun introduces herself as Knight Pearson. She moves to the co-pilot seat, and the knight handling the flying introduces herself as Knight Carson. They note that the miniguns are loaded and ready to go, and suggest that the group be ready to use them if needed. A note here, I realize that if you have a larger group, like I do, there's logically no way you can get them all on board a vertebrate, especially if they're all in power armor. We're taking some creative liberties here, especially since I can't justify sending two vertebrates in this situation. So, for those who've played Fallout 4 and actually seen the vertebrate, just be aware we're taking some liberties here for the sake of semi-decent storytelling. Needless to say, they get to Lemp Brewery from Forest Park in about five minutes, and they're definitely there in time as the vertebrate is still on the ground when they arrive. They can also notice, or be told by one of the knights flying, that the only occupants of the vertebrate at present are the pilot and the co-pilot. So, the group has an opportunity to give themselves an advantage here, and if I know my group, they're going to want to take it. Taking out the vertebrate on the ground can definitely be done, but they need to be smart about it. Sure, they've got a couple of miniguns with a ton of ammo, but they need to remember that so does the other vertebrate. So, that leaves us with explosives. That takes us to what makes the most sense. I mean, one of the most obvious choices would be a mini nuke. I mean, it does a lot of damage in one go, so they could most likely take out the vertebrate with only one explosive needed. However, there's something that needs to be taken into account here. They don't know where in the brewery Denman and her cohorts are, so blowing up a section of the brewery itself, which is exactly what they'd be doing with a mini nuke, might do them more harm than good, since it might prevent them from being able to get in and make sure they finish the job. That leaves us with missiles and grenades. Those will work, but we do need to put some stakes in here. We need to actually make the group roll for them, and the number of required successes depends on where they are in contrast to the ground. I'm assuming they're staying high enough up to stay out of immediate range of the miniguns, so we're going with difficulty 2 for the missile launching and difficulty 3 for the grenades. And this is something we need to be conscious of, because falling short means they don't hit the vertebrate directly. Missing by 1 means the bird takes half of the roll damaged, with the building itself taking the other half. And missing entirely, or only getting one success on a grenade, means that the building takes all of the damage. The vertebrate needs to take 25 points of damage before it becomes useless. Now that being said, the miniguns will still be good, so they're going to have to deal with those. And if the side of the building takes 20 points of damage, it'll collapse, so they'll have to go in another way and hope they run into Denman. Now, that being said, there's always an option B, or C, or D. You, you have to know my group to get it. Then again, I guess you already do because I talk about them all the time. I mean, if you blow up the entire building, you'd be able to hit the ground, check the wreckage, and move along. So let's see what that's going to take. And I mention it because my group's still got two mini-nukes, at least as of when I'm recording this podcast. And they tend to have a thing for nuking stuff into oblivion. In fact, we've had more than one discussion about the fact that since Silly Putty exists, there must be Serious Putty. Scott and Jim have both noted more than once that Serious Putty exists, and it's called C4. Those of you who know your explosive ordinance will get the joke. If not, Google it. 
I don't sweat Googling that stuff anymore since as a gamer and a GM, I'm probably on a couple of different watch lists anyway. Oh, and hello to the government agent stuck watching and listening to me this week. I hope you're enjoying the show. Anyway, let's get back to the issue with mini nukes. If you check the big guns chart on page 106, we can see that mini nukes do 21 dice of damage. Oh, and it doesn't have mini nukes on the list. Those are the stats for a fat man, which is the launcher for mini nukes. My group has figured out how to use them without one, so we don't sweat that too much. So to take down the whole building, well, the part of the building that you and I both know Denman and her flunkies are in at this point, we'll get to that shortly, they're going to need to do 40 points of damage. If they want to take out both the vertebrate and the building, well, let's just move on along to see what happens with the 40 points of damage to the building. What they'll see is the building implode, and if you've ever seen footage of a building being demolished, you'll get the idea. If you haven't, check out a couple of them on YouTube, and I'd especially suggest stadium implosions since they give the best look at what this is going to look like. Once the initial dust cloud settles and they're just considering landing, there's another explosion that takes out the rest of the brewery and the vertebrate on the ground. What's responsible for that? We'll get to it later. Just trust me. They can land after that cloud of dust settles, and if they check the rubble, they don't find much of the people that were in the building, but they do find pieces of power armor and weapons, so they can be certain they took out who they needed to take out. They also find shards of something that appears to be a missile casing, so that'll probably be what they assume the other explosion came from, though they'll come to the thought that a single missile, or a half a dozen of them for that matter, couldn't possibly do that much damage. So with the confidence that they took care of the job, they can load back up onto the vertebrate and head back to the Pacificus for the next mission. If that's how this went, then the group's done for the week and we'll pick up things next week. But if your group has decided they just want to take out the vertebrate so they can head into the building to handle Jessica Denman and her men personally, this goes a bit differently. And for those wondering why a group might want to do things this way, the most obvious reason for me is that this allows them to make 100% certain they've finally taken care of Jessica Denman and those closest to her. It'll also give them the chance to figure out what she and her team have been working on that she finds so important for the group on the pugness. So with the vertebrate left grounded, though not blown up, which is something for us to keep in mind for later on, they'll be able to land and head into the building for their big confrontation. And since the last time I did a map, things didn't go so well, we're going to make this confrontation an easy one, which will also explain why their big boom, if they did one, managed to take everybody out. Let's set this up. Entering the brewery from where the vertebrate was sitting, they enter the loading area, which is where barrels of beer, along with cases full of 6 and 12 packs, would have been sitting to be loaded onto trucks for delivery prior to the war. They run into a tall blonde woman and a half a dozen individuals in power armor accompanying a huge stretcher-like apparatus with what appears to be a pretty dang big missile. The group might decide to engage in small talk, but Denman's not going to do much more than suggest the group back down. Her goons won't say anything, and this is going to break down into a fight, so let's stat these guys out. So we've been going with Garson tactical members all along, and since this is the head of Garson, the half dozen men around her are going to be the cream of the crop. We'll go with Brotherhood of Steel Paladin stats, and those are on pages 383 and 384. And they're in T60F power armor, and those numbers are on page 142. Denman will use the stats for a Brotherhood of Steel Elder, and those stats are also on page 382. 
And since it specifically says in the stats that this individual would wear an armored battle coat, we'll say instead that Denman's pantsuit is armored. Therefore, those stats will work. Also, instead of a long laser rifle, she'll use a laser pistol, and the stats for one of those are on page 101. Use laser gun, since there's a bit of a typo there, and it isn't listed as laser pistol. Laying out the playing field here, there's no place for anybody to hide, so it's basically going to be the group on group at point blank range. Also, we need to keep aware of the missile. Any attack that comes with a complication requires a roll. If the attack hits, they're going to be okay. If it misses, they hit the missile. Once the missile takes 20 points of damage, it explodes and takes everybody out with it. Also, if your group is less than six, reduce the number of goofballs accordingly if you think you need to. If you've got a group the size of mine, you might want to add one or two, but I think the amount we've got there is good for a group of six, which is what I've got at my table at this point. Now, the Garson guys are going to fight to the death, so this is going to be a bit of a slog. Denman can be stopped without killing her, but it requires taking out all of her people before she gets taken out. She won't talk, and even threatening her with taking her to the Pacificus isn't going to change her mind. She'll insist on being silent, so they'll need to transport both her and the missile back to the airship. The knights on the bird will request another vertebrate due to the amount of weight that needs to be moved, and when they say why they need it, one is immediately dispatched. The group can get the missile and Denman loaded onto a bird, and I'm sure a couple of them were going to want to ride with her. Since we've got a lot to cover once the group gets on board the Pacificus, you know what? I think we're going to close out the build here for the week. But that means we've got a recap to do. And since it's going to be mission critical for you to be able to keep up with what we've been doing in my group, since it's been a month since the last time we played, whew, let's get to it. Last time, our group picked up right after they finished the job in Ledoux, and we're trying to decide whether or not they should report to Victor or head to the Vest Bottling Plant to follow up on the lead they'd gotten during the meeting in Clayton earlier that evening. Since the plant isn't that far away from Diamond Pass, they decided to hit the plant first, then Victor's office. When they got there, they found the two shipping containers full of synths and decided to use Jim's Mr. Gutsy to contact Bruno to offer them up to Victor. Victor and Bruno arrived on site shortly thereafter, and Victor not only agreed to take them, but offered to pay the group with something they'd been asking for. He took them to the Symphony Hall and got them the two suits of power armor we'd written in for them to get later in the adventure. From there, they returned to their base of operations on Laclede's Landing and got some much-needed rest. The next morning, Mackenzie Cook approached them and mentioned the incursions taking place on the north side of the city and noted the death of her dog during the last one. Needless to say, my group took a very John Wick stance on that, so they decided to head across the river to deal with the issue. And if you haven't seen John Wick, what have you been doing with your time? I'm just saying. The group crossed the river, dealt with the scorched, Yao Guai, and feral ghouls we'd put in place for that series of encounters, and we ended the session with the group hearing the sounds of a firefight coming from the steel mill. We picked up the session two weeks ago at that point, and the group made their way to the steel mill. I gave them the particulars of the combat going on inside, and they wisely chose to find spots to quasi-hide in and were content to allow the groups to basically kill each other. They went in post-fight, finished off anyone still breathing, and searched the area for anything useful. I noted the markings on the crates, and the group began to theorize what might have been in the unmarked crates, and I let them just go with their thoughts on that. They got the holotape with Jessica Demon's voice on it and realized pretty quickly that one of the groups here was probably the one that hit Victor's storage facility quite some time back. 
They made their way back across the river, met with Cook, and were there when Bruno brought the new puppy. From there, they returned to their base. A couple of mornings later, they received a note asking them to meet at Lafayette Square, and they decided that rather than just trust someone they don't know, they'd go get some backup. They asked for some backup from Victor, and he provided them with some Mr. Gutsies to back them up in case of an ambush. They made their way to the square, scoped it out, and waited for their meeting. They got the next letter and followed it to the graveyard. They managed to get the door open, and they got the explosive disarmed so they could head down the hole. And I made a change here. I decided that those wearing power armor wouldn't be able to get down the hole in the armor, so Aniston and Braden had to take the armor off and lock it inside the vault. The group made their way down the halls, solved the riddles, and got to the storage room where the four Brotherhood of Steel members were being held. They got them out and took them to Diamond Pass, where they were treated and armed enough to head off to the old post office to retrieve Zane's power armor. I mean, since I changed the power armor for the group, I had to do it for her as well. They successfully retrieved the armor and got the note detailing where the communications gear was. They tracked it down and made it through the dome without conflict due to having overwhelming firepower. They got the gear and the line on who took it. Following up on that, they made their way to the red light district, got their man, and took him back to Victor. That job being handled, the group again headed back to their base where they got the note letting them know that things aren't what you think they are. They headed north, got to the factory, and found the vertebrate. However, before they could do any searching, they decided to hack into the systems. That set off the self-destruct and left the group running away. The closer they got to downtown, the better they saw the smoke rising from Diamond Pass. They got there, assisted in putting out the last of the fire and treating the wounded. Bruno let them know what had happened with Victor, and he also told them he'd start working up intel to figure out what happened and where he was taken. The group decided to try Mackenzie Cook as a source, and since we wrote this with her not being able to be there, I said the front of her office was a wreck and she was nowhere to be found. They moved on, so I had Bruno put them in the direction of the Fox Theater. They got there, scoped it out, and decided they needed to find somebody to back them up. Bruno gave them Mr. Lee's name, they met with him, and he agreed to have a couple of his super mutants cover them with miniguns. And that was where we ended the session. We game again tomorrow night as of our release day, so I'll have another recap for you next week. And that brings today's show to an end. Next week, we get our group onto the Pacificus and get them their next assignment. In the meanwhile, check out our other show, Role Playing History. This week is the second of our two-part discussion of gaming conventions. This week, we cover conventions outside the United States. There's a lot of ground to cover, so don't miss it. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgeandproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. To check out the entire line from Modifius Entertainment, head to your local game shop or check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We're all over social media, so check out the info box for this episode or our website, badgmproductions.net, to see where you can follow us. Next week, we get our group out on their next mission. What's it going to (laughs) be? Only time will tell. That's next week. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.